your Bible. Good morning. You braved the cold and the snow. Winter finally got here, didn't it? I was praying it wouldn't, but I, that, that failed. Uh, the Lord had other plans for us. That through suffering we might be made perfect, right? So, I um, want to make just a couple quick announcements. Uh, number one, if you are a visitor or a newcomer, to Chillicothe Bible Church. And by a newcomer, I mean somebody who's maybe been here less than six months. Um, we, we are having an event on uh, January the 24th, right after church. We'll have pizza with the pastors. Okay? And you can uh, get introduced to Pastor Stephen and I if you, that's not happened yet. Uh, ask us any questions that you want. Uh, about our personal lives, about church, about um, anything that's going on here ministry-wise that you're curious about. We just want to get to know you, give you an opportunity to get to know us, and to um, get connected into Chillicothe Bible Church. Another thing is today is the renewal of small groups. And if you are not in a small group, you need to get in a small group, okay? Uh, because the reality of, of church is this, that one of the points, according to your New Testament of church, is not simply that we worship God, but also that we build relationships one with another of love and care and mutual prayerfulness and encouragement and accountability and, um, and challenge and enjoyment and you become part of a family, not just a worshiping community. And it's very, very hard to do that if the only thing you show up for is worship on Sunday morning when you can get here. And so we would like to encourage you to get yourself into a small group. And if you're not in one, I want you to see me right after the service, and I will give you a list of ones that you can pick from. Uh, they're all sermon-based, and so they, if you have showed up here this morning, you are already prepared for small group. You know how to, to intelligently discuss all the questions that will come up at small group. Uh, and you'll get an opportunity to uh, plug into that because it's a great thing. Last thing I wanted to say to you all is I don't know if you have noticed, but those of us who are leader, leaders in the church are not getting any younger. Uh, it's a funny thing. I thought that would work the other way. But um, we need some additional leaders in our church, uh, both men and women. And so one of the things I am going to try to do to help us in that effort as a church is to actually start doing some leadership training. And so we have a, a gathering that is planned for, let me be sure I get the date right, uh, Thursday... Uh, January 21st at 6 p.m. If you're interested in being a leader or in developing your leadership skills and your theological understanding, growing in your personal spiritual life, uh, in your ability to share the gospel with other people, those are things we're going to work on together as a group. So if you're interested in that, um, show up on January the 21st, 6 o'clock, men or women. Uh, I'd love to work with you. We're going to study some. We're going to share the gospel some. We're going to learn how to do some things ministerially and uh, also 
uh, grow in Christ together. So uh, with that out of the way, let's pray, and then let's open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You not only for Your greatness and grandeur and glory, but also for the Son of God, who though He was enthroned in heaven, though from eternity past He is God, He humbled Himself, taking on the likeness of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, went to death, even death on the cross. For us and for our salvation that we might be able to call you Father and might be saved from sin and death and hell and might glorify you for all eternity, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray that by your Holy Spirit that we would be led into your presence through the Word and that we might praise you with lips and life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. And so if you've got your Bible, I'd like you to open it there to Hebrews chapter 1. And as you make your way there... I want to tell you a little story about John Patton, Scottish missionary. He and his wife had been sent to minister among the natives in what is now the South Pacific Island chain of Vanuatu, which was then the British colony of the New Hebrides. And at that time, all of the natives were cannibals. I mean, serious cannibals. If you were a foreigner and you landed ashore, they ate you. And John and his wife had recently arrived on this island, and they had built this little hut, and one night all of the surrounding villagers, all of the men, had come out with spears to kill and eat them. And John and his wife got on the floor of their little hut and began to pray through the night for God's protection. And they prayed and they prayed and they thought at any moment these tribesmen are going to come bursting through the door to get us. But daylight came and as daylight came all of the tribesmen just vanished off into the forest. They got through the night. And they took that as a sign from God that they had His protection. And so they continued their work day by day among these people. And after about a year, the local tribal chief came to faith in Christ. And as they were sharing the gospel with him, they asked him about that night a year earlier where they had been huddled on the floor in prayer. And they asked him, why didn't you come in? And the chief responded to their question with a question. He said, well, who were those men with you? And they looked at him and they said, there were no men with us. It was just us. He said, no, that's not true. I saw men there. Tall men in shining robes with drawn swords all around your cabin. And we could not come in. 
And the chieftain wanted to know who those men were. You know who they were. They were the angels of God sent to protect his people. And the missionary and his wife couldn't see him, but the tribesmen could. And they thought, I'm not going over there, not while those guys stand guard. And I tell you that story because passage of scripture we're looking at today has a lot to do with angels and about how Christ is superior even to the most glorious of the angels. The angels are God's servants, and they are great, and they are glorious in both appearance and power. But they don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ, the Lord and heir and creator of all things. Amen? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it with me to, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 to 14. We'll read them all together. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says... He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now in those verses, those, uh, those 10, 11 verses there, the writer of Hebrews outlines five ways that Jesus is superior to all of the angelic realm. First, in verses 4 to 5, if you look at those, you see that Jesus has a superior name. In Jewish thought, uh, a person's name reveals something about their essential character. Remember, when you, get, when you, when you have that, all kinds of people in the Old Testament have different names. You know, they start out with one name and they get another one. And probably the best example of this is with Jacob. Right? Jacob, at the beginning of his life from birth, is called Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, the supplanter, the guy who's always trying to tilt the table his direction. That was his name. 
And he lives that out. I mean, he cheats his brother. He, che- he lies to his father. He cheats his uncle. He's cheating everybody in sight so that he can gain advantage for himself. And then later, just as he's about to meet up after 20 years with the brother that he lied and cheated and stole from, who had a 20-year grudge, who the last time that he saw him told him, next time I see you, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. He's about to meet that brother, and he spends the night in the mud on the Jabbok River about to go into the promised land again for the first time in 20 years. And there he meets a man who wrestles with him all night. And, he dislo- and the man at, the, at daybreak dislocates his hip. Now that's hard to do, by the way. You know, you can dislocate your shoulder easy, but to dislocate your hip takes some effort. And by the way, if you do it, it doesn't go back in. And you limp the rest of your life. And the man that he wrestles with is able to do it just by reaching over and touching him. So in other words, he hasn't been using all of his strength as he wrestles with Jacob through the night. And all of a sudden, Jacob realizes who it is he has been wrestling with. And he gets a new name, remember? Israel. He wrestles with God. Not the cheater anymore. Now he has come face to face with God. And God has made it clear to him that the person that you have been fighting against is not all these other people. It's been with me. And Jacob, the wrestling needs to stop. He gets a new name. Jesus has a name too. A name that is far above any of the angels. Did you catch what it is? the name Son. Son. Singular. In fact, my Bible capitalizes it to make sure you don't miss it. How do we know? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment, according to Hebrews, of two Old Testament passages that the writer quotes here. They are Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14. The first one says, You are my son, today I have, forgotten, I have begotten you. And that's from a psalm that every Jew who read it understood as messianic, as fulfilled in the Messiah and only in the Messiah, because no merely human king could justly and fully claim to be God's son. And the second is from the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David that he would always have a descendant to sit on his throne. And uh, the writer of Hebrews applies it here and says that properly speaking, when it speaks of the son of David as God's son, that can only apply, properly speaking, to Jesus, who is the son of God, and who was announced as the son of God at his baptism, remember? The heavens opened up, and the, and the Holy Spirit descended as a, do, as a dove, and a voice called out from heaven, This is my Son. He has a better name than all of the angels. 
Now, the angels have some high and exalted names. You know, like Michael means the one who is like God. But the Son is God in the flesh. And according, and, and on that, you know, some, I don't want you to get tripped up by this bit about begotten. But today I have begotten you. The scriptures are clear that the Son of God always existed. But he did not always exist in incarnate form. In other words, the Son did not always exist with a human nature. Did not always live as a human being, as, as Jesus did. And so there may have been some question, even in the angelic realm, about the, about the essential nature and identity of the God-man. And if so, God clears it up. When Jesus ascends into heaven and he is welcomed with this name, Son. It's the name he possessed from eternity past. And just as no human king can claim that title, so no angel can claim it either. And Jesus also has superior honor. If you look at verse 6, it says... When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses. And and the writer of Hebrews here quotes it to say that when the son came into the world, that all God's angels were commanded to worship him. You remember when that happened? And suddenly there was with the with the angel a great company of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest right the son is worshiped now by the way angels do not worship one another they worship God and him alone And so if Jesus Christ is an angel, it would be inappropriate to bow before him in worship. But when the Son comes into the world, God commands the angels concerning his Son that all of them should worship him. He has superior honor to them. Thus, he can be rightly worshipped. And he also has superior vocation. He has a superior job, a superior role. And, he, and to back up his argument, the writer of Hebrews again quotes from Psalms. He quotes Psalm chapter 45, verse 6 to 7. It's a psalm addressed to Israel's king using language that can't be fulfilled by anyone who is merely a human descendant of David. No merely human king could ever be properly addressed as the son is in verse 8 and 9. Your throne, O God can't refer to a human being like that. At least not someone who is just a man. But it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the God-man. And notice what he possesses as king. It says that he has an eternal throne. No human king ever had an eternal throne. I mean, David 
was one of the best kings that there's ever been in the history of the world. And he reigned for about 40 years. Which is a long time. But it's a, it's a short time compared to forever and ever. Amen? And on top of that, he has a scepter. And the scepter is what represents your authority as king. And it says it's a scepter of uprightness because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's not a merely human king. Even the best human kings fail. And even the best of them sometimes love wickedness and hate righteousness. But this king is different. And therefore God says, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, that this king has received an anointing far above any king before or since. He is the king of kings who rules in righteousness in heaven forever. It's not true of any of the angels. And he is also superior in his existence. And again, I don't know if you would ever uh, have to explain who Jesus is by the base, on the basis of your knowledge of Psalms, but, <laughs> but Hebrews does that. Quotes the psalmist again from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, which is about God himself. And the writer makes it plain that everything that the psalmist says about God is also true of Jesus Christ, that he is a superior existence to the angels. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. If you, if you were there to bring creation into existence, what did you have to do before that? You had to exist prior to the creation, right? You had to be there before there was time. And when he applies that to Jesus, he's saying that Jesus is the eternally existent Son of God who existed before there was creation and who brought creation into existence. Angels are a created being. But Jesus exists forever. And in fact, it says that, that just like a man, you know, if you're a man, most of us, you know, we have, still have some clothes from like high school, right? Uh, but a lot of us have changed our clothes over time, right? We've got rid of the leisure suits, if you can go back that far. Uh, you know, you have, if you have a suit that you outgrew, you got rid of it, Right? Um, you know, I figured out, by the way, that it's not my weight that's a problem, it's my height. I need to be about 7'6", right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, but the idea is, is that, is that uh, over time, over a lifetime, you would change your clothes, right? As clothes wear out, you change them. Well, one day this universe is going to wear out. Scientists tell us in about 2 billion years that our sun will go extinct. 
will just quit shining. There won't be any heat anymore, right? And the writer of Psalms says that when the universe wears out or is one day rolled up like an old coat and put away, that Jesus will still be there, eternal and unchanging. Just like you as a man are still there when your clothes wear out, so Jesus is still there when the universe wears out. Eternal and unchanging. And he's also superior to the angels in his reign. If you look at verse 13 and 14, verse 13, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, he applies this to the Son of God and says that he sits now enthroned at God's right hand, waiting for the day when the Father puts everything in subjection to him. And that bit about footstool might not make a lot of sense to you unless you have one at your house you know we use the coffee table as a footstool right <laughs> bring it right over to the to the to the sofa put pillows on top prop the feet up so we can watch football and slouch down right it's great okay but in the ancient near east what you did if you were the conquering king to show that you had fully conquered your enemies is that you brought in the leader you know, either of the city or of the country that you had conquered, and you had him kneel down next to your throne, and you literally put your feet up on his back and used him as a footstool. Because it, in, in that guy's humiliation, it showed that you had had unconditional surrender of all of your enemies. And that they were totally defeated because you used that person to put the dirty parts of your body on and what this pictures is jesus total victory over every enemy so that there is no longer any rogue rebellious corner of the universe anywhere One day Satan will be defeated. One day sin will be defeated. One day death will be defeated. And Jesus will have total victory over all rebellious forces and beings in the universe. And He will reign forever. Now that's not true of any of the angels. Now, there are two reasons the writer of Hebrews goes into all this business about angels. The first is for the sake of encouragement. You know, these are persecuted people. These are people, many of whom will probably lose their lives under Emperor Nero. And he wants to encourage them that what you see happening right now is not ultimately what is reality. That ultimately, though there reigns on earth today a king who has the power to put you to death, ultimately in heaven reigns another king who has power to cast that man, body and soul, into hell. 
because he is higher and greater and more powerful and has a greater name than even the angels in heaven. And so it's encouragement to these Hebrew Christians who are suffering persecution. Don't you worry about it because Jesus still reigns as King and God and Son. And if you go to your death, you're going to your death in honor of the King of Kings. But the other reason that he tells us that is as preface to a rebuke. And I want to show you that in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. C.S. Lewis famously remarked that if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity... I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And that's true. Most people who cease professing faith in Christ don't do so all at once as a result of some show-stopping argument. You know, they got in a fight with Bart Ehrman over the authenticity of the gospel accounts or something like that. That isn't why people turn away from Christ. <clears throat> they drift for other reasons. And one of the deadliest reasons that people drift is that when pressure and opposition comes, they, they succumb to the temptation to just slightly alter some part of the faith so that the pressure backs off. And that seems to be the temptation that the Hebrews are facing. Angels were greatly revered in Judaism. Angels were upheld because they were the conduit of God's revelation in the Old Testament. And what seems to be the case here with these Hebrew Christians is that, is that they understand if I would just say that Jesus is the highest of the angels, then I could regain admittance to the synagogue. And because Judaism is a legal religion, I could escape this persecution that is coming. And after all, I could still hold on to the idea that an exalted messenger of God has come to me and has been the conduit of revelation to me, but it, as long as I don't say that He is God, then I'm acceptable. And then I can escape from the persecution that has come on me. And so what I can do is I can kind of straddle the line 
between Judaism and Christianity. I can still hold the faith in Jesus, but I'm going to define Jesus in a way that's more socially acceptable. It's not an option, according to the writer of Hebrews. Because Jesus is not an angel. And you don't get to define Jesus as you wish him to be, but as he has revealed himself to be. Amen? And that's why he is, part of the reason why he has spent so much time talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. So that they don't drift away, because drifting away is not an option. Verses 2 to 4 in this, this part of chapter 2 are written in a Hebrew form of argument that's called light to heavy. And what that means is this, that if something is true at the lower level, then it is also true at the greater level. And his point is this, this is the point he's making, when he says, if the word that came through angels... resulted in punishment for those who violated it. Now what's the word that came through angels? That's the law that came, was mediated by God to Moses through the angel. If that, if violations of that and rejection of that and disobedience to that was punished, then what do you think will be the outcome if we reject the gospel, which has come not through an angel, but through the incarnate Son. Let me just remind you, by the way, the punishments in the law were serious. Shortly after a guy, uh, you know, Moses had come down to the mountain, he had delivered the law to the people, and, and they had all understood it and agreed to it. And they said, everything that the Lord says we will do couple days after that happened, it was the Sabbath day, and there was a guy who was out gathering firewood in clear violation of what God had told him, do no work on the Sabbath day. You know what happened to that guy? He was put to death. Why? Because he had deliberately violated what God had revealed. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying the law is a lesser form of revelation than that which we have received in Christ. And God is forever more serious about his revelation and about our obedience to it. Therefore, if you could expect judgment under the law, you can certainly expect judgment under the gospel if you reject that. And what he's saying here is this. This is a very, very serious thing. And you may think that you are just making a minor change. But what you're actually doing is leaving the Christian faith. And the Christian faith was not instituted 
by an it wasn't mediated as as the law was through an angel it comes through a series of witnesses look at what they are it was declared by the lord god bore witness through the holy spirit In other words, God himself as the triune being who rules and reigns in heaven has revealed this to you. And so you better take it serious. While you may escape Nero's persecution, you will not escape the wrath of God if you leave what you know to be true. This is a serious, this is probably one of the most serious warnings in your entire Bible. And Hebrews is famous for its warning passages. There's one in chapter 2, there's one in chapter 6, there's one in chapter 10. Uh, this, let me be very clear on this. This passage does not teach that a person can lose his or her salvation. The New Testament is overwhelmingly clear, and I can show you a number of places that says this, that salvation authentically possessed cannot be lost. Because as much as we do to gain our salvation is as much as we have to do to maintain it. Amen? And the scriptures are very clear that we don't do anything to get our salvation. Therefore, we don't do anything to keep it. However, there is a question that is raised in several places in your New Testament. Whether a person authentically possesses salvation to start with. And over and over, one of, the re, one of the ways that you know whether or not a person has authentic faith or is just a pretender is when persecution comes, what do they do? How do you know that you have the genuine article? That when persecution comes, you suffer rather than deny the Lord. And if instead of that you walk away, the New Testament does not have anything comforting to say to you. It says that you are a faker, an opposer, and a hypocrite. And that you do not, in fact, know the Lord. And warnings like this in Hebrews chapter 2 are designed to have every one of us say to ourselves, whoa, and examine ourselves and make sure that what we profess and what we possess are the same thing. Amen? That we actually possess in our own hearts, the faith we profess with our mouth. 
Because it is possible to make all kinds of noise that you are a Christian and yet never have experienced being born again. But if you abandon Christ for the sake of temporary comfort, it will be proof that you never knew him to begin with. That's very serious. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. We need to heed what Hebrews is telling us. We need to hear this instruction. Do not drift away. Pay attention to Christ and to your salvation. Now I know this, that the longer I live, the more I accumulate stories. Heartbreaking stories of people who once had a zeal for Christ, who once were, were apparently, to all appearance, walking with Christ, proclaiming Christ, had knowledge of Christ, and yet, for whatever reason, have walked away. And they now speak of their Christian faith in the past tense. And they say things like this, Oh yes, I was once like you. I remember my Christian days. Oh yes, my Christian days. I'm so glad I have matured and grown out of that foolishness. I had someone tell me that two weeks ago. Gal I went to high school with, we we were in youth group together. She had heard the gospel a thousand times if she'd heard it once. And she claimed to believe it. And now has no interest in the things of God. How did that happen? Did she lose her salvation? No. Did she ever have it to begin with? No. And my, one of my big fears in our church and for my own, my own self and my own children is that we would get just enough gospel to inoculate ourselves from getting the infection. That we would learn Christian jargon and we would learn to mouth Christianese and we would learn to speak and act in a certain way because of the people that we're around, but never put our authentic faith in Jesus and fling ourselves on the mercy of God in a way that changes and transforms from the inside out, not simply cleans up the outside. Amen? This is a serious warning. Now, I say that And then I also want to say this, that sometimes preachers succeed in scaring all of the wrong people. (laughs) Okay. As the writer of Hebrews says in another place, we are confident of better things in your case, beloved. Right? Uh, Sometimes we lead people who do authentically know Christ to question their salvation, and that's not my purpose here. 
That's not the purpose of this book. But it is to say that each person should examine himself or herself to be sure that their faith is real, knowing that opposition is coming and that when it comes, it will reveal what is really there. And that only the genuine believer will stand. But the encouragements in this passage are ours too. They're ours too. We do not follow and profess our faith in one who is merely powerful or who is the highest created being or who is a servant of God in heaven. We are followers of and have put our faith in the eternal, all-powerful creator of all things who lasts through, who existed before, and who will outlive the creation itself. We worship the Son of God who reigns forever at the right hand of the Father in heaven now and forevermore. And that being is the one who has come and suffered and died and rose and transformed and regenerated and saved and bought us. Amen? And since that is true, then whatever comes, we can stand. Amen? I love the story of the, the, one of the old martyrs, Polycarp. They were going to burn him at the stake. And they said, renounce Jesus Christ and live. Fail to renounce him and die. You got a choice. And he said, for 80 and 6 years I have followed my Lord and he has never renounced me how could I renounce him amen how could I walk away from him who loves me and gave himself for me do not drift away cling to the savior amen let's pray father this is a sobering word one that we do well to pay attention to. Father, help us not to drift away. Help us not to allow the things of God to become so familiar to us that we are no longer impressed by Your grace and mercy and amazing power. Help us not to allow the passing of years to become the increasing of a gap between us and you. Father, help us to stand firm in the faith once for all, delivered to all the saints, no matter what comes, that our faith might be proved genuine and that we might honor you all the way to the end. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, by your grace, and through your Holy Spirit. Amen.